Hello and welcome to Tap of the Iceberg, episode 4, which is very exciting. They say that what you're supposed to do if you launch a podcast is to record three episodes, release them at the same time, and then release one a week. What I've done instead is release one every two weeks, and in that intervening time, I've genuinely considered just not doing anymore. So it's a very different approach I've taken, and I think what it's done is massively decrease the number of people who are listening. And I think the other way I've done that successfully is by not telling anyone what I'm up to. Nevertheless, if you find us, here we are at the tip of the iceberg, and my name is Keyvon. That's Keyvon. Ask again if you forget. Don't be embarrassed. That's what I always say. And yeah, I'm a trainee educational psychologist in my third year, and I am talking you through some of the trials and tribulations of trying to get onto the course and some of the trials and tribulations and trials and tribulations and trials and tribulations of being on the course. I repeated that three times because I've had a difficult week, but it's okay. We're going to get through this because that's what we do. Um, as a great philosopher said... I believe it was Professor Chumbawamba. Uh, I get knocked down, but I get up again. And, and that's me. So today I want to talk about assessment. I thought I'd be able to cover one-to-one work with a child in an episode or two. But the more preparation I did for talking to you again, the more I realized quite how in-depth this is going to be. And I was put in a bit of a quandary because I thought... Is the audience one which is applying for a place very soon and therefore they need like a really rough guide? Or is this going to be a more methodical, thought out approach to what actually happens? And I thought to myself, well, I think we've covered some of the main piece of advice I would give you if you were going to interview or writing your personal statement. And I also think that the universities will forgive you a certain lack of knowledge so i think at this point we're now getting into the details of what you might want to know if you maybe had six months to a year to prepare and i think i'm going to forgive myself and allow myself to now take my time and work through each of these aspects because it's it's sort of it's simultaneously something i'm doing for people who might benefit from the exercise but it's also remember supposed to be a reflection for me which is really important as well. So what we'll do is we'll pick apart certain aspects of the role and get into them in a bit more detail, take a more sort of fine-grained approach to it. And to be perfectly honest, we could take an even finer grain approach if we wanted to. So if you recall, I said that an educational psychologist is an Arctic researcher, not the best acronym ever but it'll do and essentially what that means is that we are engaged in assessments we are engaged in reflection we're engaged in consultation training interventions and sort of casework or creative work or, or that space for us to do other kinds of work and of course ideally we'll do some form of research as well And I also talked about the code of practice and the broad areas of need represented in that. 
So today I wanted to talk about assessment. I wanted to talk about assessing and how it relates to one of those broad areas, and that is the cognition and learning area. And the form of assessment I wanted to talk about was psychometric assessment. Sometimes it's referred to as cognitive assessment, but then, <laughs> and then in a university, you know, discussion or seminar, you'll say, I'm going to do a cognitive assessment. And your tutor will say, well, what kind? Is it a dynamic assessment? Is it a psychometric assessment? A standardized assessment? And like a lot of things, like sellotape, sticky back plastic, adhesive, there are different words that can be used as shorthand for different ideas. Cognitive assessment might mean the Weschler Intelligence Scale for Children, 5th edition, or the uh, British Ability Skills, 3rd uh, edition, BAS 3. So that's the kind of thing I wanted to talk about. And I I feel like if we break it down into some different approaches, we could easily spend the guts of an hour talking about it. And I think that's that's what I'm going to do today. And the reason is that even in the research, the educational psychologist's capacity to carry out these tests and the fact that they're limited to them is key because... If your profession has access to a certain capacity or skill, if you're a medical doctor and therefore you can prescribe medication, if um, you're a dentist and therefore you're allowed to apply local anesthetic, if you are an educational psychologist and therefore you're allowed to carry out a psychometric assessment like the ones we've discussed, then it's, it's hard to see how that doesn't become folded into the very meaning and identity of your role because it's specific to you. So if that's the thing you want done, that's the person that you go to to get it done. If you understand what I'm saying. So when it comes to something that's restricted to a, a given profession, then naturally that becomes something that the rest of the world associates with that the rest of the world associates with that profession uh, similarly a lot of professions who do this kind of work will make that work appear as though it is somehow esoteric and and, and impossible to understand let me, let me tell you a quick story so i actually trained to be a dentist for a while after i finished my a levels and i remember speaking to my grandfather that's my mum's mum <laughs> I remember speaking to my grandfather which is my mum's dad um, when we were on holiday and I was discussing why it was important for me to train for five years to become a dentist and I think in a sense I was trying to convince myself more than I was trying to convince him but anyway I, I was going on and on about why a dentist would need to train for that length of time and his argument was, because he liked to rile me up and challenge me, his argument was that essentially I'm just like a, a plumber for the mouth. And in reality, you could get anybody with steady hands and, you know, a reasonable ability to study and pay attention. And you could train them to be like a sort of technician, which is what a dentist would be. But the profession of dentistry itself acts as a barrier of entry and only a certain quality of person, if you don't mind me using that term, is allowed to trickle through. And I don't mean that 
they're better quality than others. I just mean by the standards set by the dental profession, it's difficult to get on with the course. That, that's all I'm saying. And therefore, only a, a smaller number of people can uh, realistically apply and an even smaller number of people can get onto the course. And therefore, what only a, an even smaller number of people qualify and are able to do those task, tasks, are able to do those tasks which are restricted to that profession. And why that's important in granddad's eyes, why that was important was because it meant that you could drive the price up. And I think that's really stuck with me because while it was expected that someone like me would go to university um, by my generation, in our family, in granddad's generation, that was a real luxury and he had to have a job for a long, long time and then study through the Open University. Um, We're talking 50 years ago as a Catholic in Northern Ireland. Things were very different than they are now and therefore he had a sort of an interesting and I think really useful scepticism about the professions and the establishment and this kind of a thing and it's a scepticism that I've tried to take with me. So I think my point is that if you as a profession are going to say no that specific job is just for us then I don't think that you can complain when the public associate you with that job. Because I think what we're going to talk about here is the fact that a lot of educational psychologists aren't very keen on psychometric assessments, these standardized psychometric assessments. And I think there are good reasons for that. But I also think that we need to be wise in terms of our understanding of the historical reasons, why that's associated with us be realistic about what they can and can't say, be generous to the public or to other professionals when they expect it of us, but also be careful that we don't get wrapped up in that and become uh, whisk, bass, wyatt machines that are just pumping out these standardised assessments because that's what our clients, as it were, want from us. And I want to say that because that's my sort of opener that was the position I was in that that's what baggage I brought to this the other thing I should say is that there was something about psychometric assessments and my background as a science teacher and as sort of physical sciences enthusiast or biological sciences really enthusiast is that I like numbers I like clarity and I like this idea of objective truth and I think psychometric assessments um make a play for that same ground and they can draw you in and I think that we should be skeptical of that and yet not throw the baby out of the bathwater and also consider how they can be used meaningfully within the EP rule and returning to some of the stuff I've discussed previously about pragmatism and just wanting to get a good job done I think psychometric assessments have a role to play there so i'm going to take a break and then i think what we'll do is uh, just briefly discuss the history of psychometric assessments within applied psychology and educational psychology in particular
So let's talk history, let's talk stories. Um, obviously I need to give some credit in terms of recommended reading to an article called Looking Back, 100 Years of Applied Psychology. Uh, and that is can be found for free in The Psychologist. That was in the September 2013 issue, uh, volume 26. <laughs> I like to do this. Pages 696 to 697. So maths fans, you'll realize there that you don't have a huge amount to read, which is lovely. So the first educational psychologist, I, I bet you there are a lot of people who apply to be educational psychologists who never actually give any serious thought to who the first educational psychologist was. It almost, like a lot of things, like money or uh, plumbing, we just assume these as facts of life, as if humanity just sort of arrived with, uh, what is it Bertrand Russell says, with holes in our pockets and um, messy hair, or whatever, I can't remember the exact phrase. So the first educational psychologist was appointed in Britain in 1913, but if you remember that the first university department dedicated to psychology was opened in 1879 by Wilhelm Wundt. Wundt, is it? I don't know. Um, in Leipzig. So we're talking, quick maths, that's 21 years plus 13. 34 years. 34 years from the invention of psychology, in a sense, to the first educational psychologist, which is uh, pretty impressive. And Cyril, or Sir Cyril, Bert was appointed as an educational psychologist within London City Council. Now, why is that, is the question. So, let's talk about why Cyril Burt was appointed. If you want to talk about why Cyril Burt was appointed, you need to take a slight sort of handbrake turn, a slight handbrake turn, imagine. You need to take a handbrake turn and look at the history of education, and in particular, the history of special educational needs education. So taking a glance at the USA, Massachusetts started a process of compulsory and free education for primary age pupils in 1852. In England it was in 1870 when the Education Act paved the way for compulsory education. Uh, so that's education for all young people aged 5 to 12 and that process was completed 10 years later in 1880. See what I did there? I added 10 years. Um, now this is key. You've got universal education. What does universal education bring you? Well, it brings you the truth. It brings you everybody. It brings you the strengths and the needs and the realities of all the humans that are supposed to be taught this curriculum. And therefore, there are challenges. Because children who, and I'm now referring back to this article, children who previously would not have been considered educable were admitted to schools. And it was clear, again, according to the article, that some children had difficulties not manifested by the vast majority of others. And what we now have is an attempt, we're talking 140, 150 years ago now, an attempt to systematize and categorize what those needs, barriers, and so on that the children manifested actually were. Because obviously with categorization and finding patterns, that allows us to also come up with patterns of solution and the system ties those solutions. Um, but in the early days, and we're talking at the beginning of the 20th century now, um, there were some inconsistencies around the diagnosis, which is the term that would have been used at the time, of these needs, the identification of these needs. And what I want to do is um, quote from 
an article written by Bennett and Simon in 1916. And I should offer a trigger warning here. I know this is a century old, but some of the language might be difficult for those of us who've worked with, uh, well, just might be difficult for any of us, but especially those of us who feel the feel these issues personally. Anywho, here we go. So, one child called imbecile in the first certificate is marked idiot in the second, feeble-minded in the third, and degenerate in the fourth. So, there's a concern raised a hundred years ago that while different professionals were noticing the struggles the children were bringing in terms of their education and being educated, they hadn't generated a universal system of identifying those needs and the pattern of those needs, which was a problem. So how do you solve that problem? Well, that's where psychometric assessment comes in. So word was getting around that there were children that the law demanded should be educated that had barriers in their way. And at the time, those barriers would have been considered very much within the child. They would have been, <laughs> they would have belonged to the child. And I think in a future episode, we'll talk about the medical model and the social model of need and so on and so forth. But just, we, we kind of need to be in an early 20th century, 19th century kind of mindset here. So a French psychologist called Alfred Benet observed a few problems with the way that children were allocated to what were called special classes at the time. That's ignorance on the part of the physician, uh, variability in the terms adopted, which I think we've kind of covered a little bit, and a lack of precision in the description of the symptoms. So what we want to do is we want to give these physicians or professionals a tool or a set of tools that allow for consistency in terms of um, using the same vocabulary as one another and being as precise as one another. Now, another issue is that there were slightly different approaches taken. So what was called the medical approach at the time, which was an effort by physicians, you know, medical doctors, to diagnose inferior intelligence. And they would analyze anatomical, physiological, and pathological aspects of the child. Uh, and then there was the pedagogical model, you know, the teaching model. And that was assessing the knowledge of the child and perhaps their capability to acquire more knowledge. Now, again, there are just so many rabbit holes that we have to kind of, <laughs> sort of border up as we pass them. So even that metaphor I've just used about how knowledge is, uh, I've just used the container metaphor, whereby knowledge is a thing that fills oneself or one's brain or whatever so you give someone knowledge and then you fill them up with knowledge and then they can use that knowledge and that's not the only metaphor uh, to describe what educating a human actually involves and we'll cover that some of the time anyway that's not bordering it up that's going down it slightly but anyway right so we've got this medical model of describing the barriers to education and we've also got the pedagogical model um, and what those early adopters of the pedagogical method need are tests so that they can consistently and reliably place children into these special classes. And that's where the sort of thirst for psychometric assessment comes from. So enter Cyril Burt. 
1909, Cyril Burt was already making use of Charles Spearman's model of general intelligence to analyse data on the performance of school children in a battery of tests. So that probably sounds pretty familiar when we think about the bass or the whisk or whatever. Essentially, Burt was already well placed to assess, using this battery of tests, the intelligence, as it were, of these children. And obviously, if these children fell below a certain threshold, then they could be identified as uh, special children or, again, trigger warning, in the language of the time, feeble-minded children. And it was essentially part of Burt's rule when he was appointed in 1913 to the London County Council as a school psychologist or educational psychologist to identify these quote-unquote feeble-minded children. And that's that's really the beginning of the use of the psychometric assessment in England. Now, we are absolutely in the weeds here, okay? The amount of controversy around us right now that I have just simply ignored is staggering, okay? So you're you're looking at, for example, Francis Galton's ideas around eugenics and the innate drive in some people to commit crimes and how there's a sort of there's a there's almost a criminal class or a swatch of people that are predisposed to commit crimes. We're looking at um, all of the ideas of eugenics and how people can be stratified based on their uh, genetic characteristics. And we're looking at the corollaries of these same ideas. And there's also a sort of fatalistic idea that those who are unfortunate enough to be within this swatch of humanity that is just guaranteed to commit crimes. Um, there's a fatalistic idea that nothing can be done. So there's a quote here from Lombroso. Um, that born criminals, including hopeless recidivists and the morally insane, should be considered as incurable. All of them should be confined for life in a criminal asylum or relegated to a penal colony or else condemned to death. Now, that's late 19th century. Things are about to happen in the next 50 years which would make that statement much more painful and poisonous than it would have seemed at the time, I think. Nevertheless, it is condemning huge numbers of people based on some measurements that have been taken. And if it doesn't remind you of the film Minority Report, it certainly reminds me of that. This predestination of awfulness, it, it's antithetical to what I understand an educational psychologist's role to be, whereby we are trying to always, always find silver linings, always looking for hope, always looking for space to make things better, for things to for better things to grow into, if you understand what I'm saying. So I need to allude to the sheer scale and scope of the pain and suffering and anguish that putting numbers and attach uh, arriving at numbers and attaching them to human beings has caused nevertheless it's important to learn always 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 learning from our mistakes and it could be in my opinion that with 
some compassion and some understanding and some professionalism, we might be able to revisit psychometric assessments in their modern format, in their contemporary format, and use them to shine more light and bring more hope and possibility to the world. And that's where I sit. So I think sometimes you're going to encounter a kind of reflexive dislike and distaste for psychometric assessments. And I've only touched on the kind of emotional aspect and the historical aspect. There are other legitimate criticisms around the accuracy and so on um, that I will get to later on in the episode. But for now, I think I've what I've tried to do is bring a sense of the weight of history when it comes to these kinds of assessments and also a little dollop of what expectations might be awaiting you out in the world in terms of whether or not you're supposed to carry out these assessments. I think I'm going to take a break and then I think what we'll do is we'll break down one of the psychometric assessments. We'll look at the BAS-3 and we'll talk about some of the subtests and what they purport to measure and what the hell that has to do with your job of making things better for young people, their families and their schools. So I promised I was going to talk us through the British Ability Scales, or BAS 3 assessment. And if you just Google um, BAS 3 psychologist report, you'll get a, a PDF of a sort of generic assessment of a guy called Michael, who's a year nine student at Sunnyside Academy. Um, and has been on rule since May 2011. So I'm not sure the math there works, does it? Um, I think he's been kept back a few years, but obviously this document is kind of old. So, there is a discussion of the background to the assessment, which is, I think, good. You know, we can talk a little bit about, uh, I know in my local authority they would talk about why the psychologist is involved. And you need to be reasonably concise, but you need to maybe talk a little bit about how this particular case and this young person um, has arrived in front of you and explain how that's come to pass, really. Um, I like this particular cognitive assessment report because it has a behavioural observations paragraph, which is quite good. Um, now, presumably this is made up, so how true to life it is, I'm not really sure. And I also have found myself that if I'm going to do a cognitive assessment which breaks down uh, a number of abilities by subtest, then I often want to have that discussion of the behavioural observations in relation to the tests because it's often being asked to do certain things whether or not it's because they're boring or hard to understand or exciting or whatever it is about these particular tests you get a certain reaction in terms of behaviour and therefore one paragraph about that can be tricky I, I might break it down by test and then have a sentence after I've maybe interpreted the score, have a sentence about what's going on in terms of their behaviour as well. Uh, and that can be 
again, it really comes down to professional judgment often, but that can be something like when they realized we were going to use some like cubes to do some pattern recognition or um, pattern construction, sorry, then suddenly their eyes lit up. They realized this isn't going to be pencil and paper. It's not going to be a standard kind of academic or school task. And that can make a difference for a young person. And you think, okay, well, if they're interested in more uh, tactility in their learning and so on, that's something that's worth reporting, regardless of what the score of this um, subtest is. Another thing we have here, it's four lines long, views of the child. I think a lot of my EP colleagues would uh, scoff at the idea that you could capture the views of a child in four lines in a report. And I think you might agree with them when we move on to that aspect of assessment. I want to talk to you about personal construct psychology and some of the assessments around that. Probably going to try and keep that within the area of social and emotional and mental health needs. So let's park that and come back to it another time. We also have views of parents. In my local authority, that would be the parents' aspirations and hopes. So you, we would have the view uh, of the parents and I, I would actually probably include the parents view within why is the psychologist involved and have a little bit about why they feel like it's okay that a psychologist involved and it sort of folds ideas of consent into that and then later on I'm going to return to what are the parents aspirations and maybe before we get into the nitty-gritty of the cognition and learning issues I, I, let's punctuate that with a nice sentence about what's hoped for, whether that be seeing the whole child throughout their academic career, whether or not it's making sure that they are included in things, it's making sure that they achieve their full potential, whatever that might turn out to be. These are, for me, these really emotive, big, broad stroke ideas are something to hold on to so that we don't get lost in the detail, so that we keep what we're doing here in mind. Because ultimately, we're talking about people here. We're talking about uh, young people. And in my view, and maybe it's a philosophical view, but in my view, they're ends in themselves. So their well-being is key. And learning is just a way to facilitate that. So, again, I'm now on to page three of this report, Michael's report. And i got to tell you, it's if you're horny for numbers... You're, you're in luck. Uh, page 3, page 4, page 5, page 6, page 7, page 8, page 9. Wow, okay. So we've got mountains and mountains of numbers here. Graphs, comparisons, uh, splitting scores, contrasting different clusters of scores with others and so on and so forth. And I think you need to think to yourself probably two things. The main thing for me is, who's my audience? Okay, what I want to do is move things forward. I don't want to get lost in a whole huge amount of detail about something. What I want, to, what I want this test to do is facilitate change in the real world. If I present everyone with seven pages of graphs, is that going to do that? Who is that for? Is it like my granddad would have said? Is it me justifying myself? Is it me justifying my fee or justifying my time? Well, if you want to be that kind of psychologist, I guess I can't stop you. 
but I don't think that that, that that's not what I'm here for, okay? Now, that being said, I do, if I do a cognitive assessment, I have two, two figures, as you would say, you know, two diagrams. I have a table, which I've, I've never seen a report that does a psychometric assessment that doesn't have a table, and that'll give you, say, the standard score uh, and the age equivalent, and maybe the centile. I'm not going to go into all of that right now. It really is too specific for a podcast, I reckon. Um, <laughs> this runs long enough that I'm able to get into what a standard score is and what a centile is, then great. Uh, age equivalent, I find I never really liked, but the world out there likes it, and therefore I have now begun to introduce age equivalents into my reports because I appreciate that other people find them useful. Um, so the age equivalent being basically, uh, if this person achieved that score and it was average, this is the age you'd expect them to be, if, if that makes sense. Now, a thing I have introduced into my reports, which is different from my colleagues, is that I have a bar chart. And what I've done is, if you can imagine a, imagine a bar chart, and along the x-axis, it's just labeled the different subtests, and the y-axis is the score. And what I've done there is I've put a, it, it's the standard score, sorry, on the y-axis. What I've done is I put a big blue rectangle covering the range 85 to 115 which is the average range for the standard scores and essentially i think it gives me a really clear visual to explain to uh, parents and teachers and often young people themselves that if your little blue bar is falling if there's a big gap between it and that big blue rectangle then that suggests that that's an area of significant need that we're going to work we're going to want to work on if your blue bar goes into the blue rectangle or even um, exceeds it and sort of pushes up through the roof of it, then that's a really big strength that we're going to want to lean on in terms of getting the very best uh, for you and you fulfilling the potential. So yeah, minds and minds of diagrams. You're going to have to make a judgment call, but I'll be honest with you. Someone is supposed to be reading this and learning something from it and getting something from it and... I am in my third year of training and I've just skipped past all of those and I'm not going to talk about them anymore because quite frankly, I can't see in this rough and tumble, rough and ready style of being an educational psychologist in the 21st century here in the UK, I, I just can't see you having the luxury of, of going through it in that level of detail. Um, next, we've got the Appendix B here, and this is a description of the BAS-3 and what each scale is designed to assess. And I think this is something that I really do want to talk about. Okay, so I'm going to just skip down to the core scales. So the first one they introduce is matrices. And if you'll forgive me, I'm just going to read for a second here, okay? So this scale contributes to the GCA, or General Cognitive Ability Score, which is like shorthand for IQ, really, like between us. This scale contributes to the GCA score and the non-verbal reasoning ability cluster score. The score indicates the individual's level of non-verbal inductive reasoning ability. The items in the scale require the ability to identify rules governing variables and abstract figures and to formulate and test these rules. Solution of the items also requires the use of verbal mediation strategies and visual spatial analysis, including perception of shape, relative size and orientation. So if I tell you that the score on matrices 
and therefore your score, your nonverbal reasoning ability plus your score is below average, and that's what the test required you to do, you're a teacher, or you're a parent, or you may even be a student. What in under hell does that mean? What does that mean for their life? What does that mean for their learning? And this, this idea of you drawing a bridge between that matrix's score and what it means in terms of the reality of their life in the classroom or at home or whatever, for me, that's your job. That's my job to build that bridge. The issue is, for me, this score only tells me about one half of the bridge. It only tells me about where the bridge leaves from. It only tells me about the fact that that's what the child or the young person scored. That we can park the fact that that's only on one day. It's not entirely reliable. They could have been tired. They could have been drunk for all I know. It doesn't matter. The point is, that score, if we trust it, only tells us about their side of the story. If we're going to connect that bridge to the classroom, do we know what the classroom's like? Do we understand what subject we're talking about? Do we understand what day this is? Do they only have this particular subject? Are they only required to use these particular skills in the afternoon uh, on a Thursday? Like You know, there is there are so much to talk about in terms of what this score might mean that I think you can justify being fairly slapdash with all of that information that exists in those diagrams if when you get precise and when you get meaningful and when you get serious is with the practical considerations for that score. So let's look at the next one. We've got pattern constructions. This scale contributes to the GCA score, you know, IQ as it were, and the spatial ability cluster score. So just to be clear, a couple of subtests then get included and become a cluster score for a specific ability a child might have. Um, this score indicates the individual's level of visual spatial ability. The scale items require the ability to perceive and analyze visual information, decomposing designs into their component parts, perceiving and preserving the relative position, size, and angles of the designs, and using systematic spatial problem-solving strategies such as sequential assembly, trial and error, or hypothesis testing. Eye-hand coordination is also required to solve the items. Now, do you know enough about the entire curriculum and the way it's taught and the skills someone is expected to have for you to be able to accurately anticipate where in their learning this pattern construction score would be relevant? Maybe. I mean, some stuff. There's going to be clear aspects of the maths curriculum that where this is going to apply. And for me, sometimes if I've seen a high score here, I might start thinking in terms of study skills and think, okay, well, if they have that strong visual-spatial ability, I wonder could we start to arrange their notes in such a way that it plays into that strength and start trying to get creative with it. Therein lies the issue. I worry that these psychometric assessments are an invitation for you to say something as an educational psychologist that's definite, that feels like it's evidence-based, that feels like you've got decades and decades of research and hard work and statistics behind you, 
And as a trainee, you feel secure, you feel confident, you say it, and you move on. However, I don't think that's our job. I think our job is to facilitate making use of what you've decided to do. So you can see now why, although I'm actually quite keen on doing psychometric assessments, you really need to know what you're going in looking for. If you're just doing it because it's what's expected, because it's the dentist thing and it's my granddad all over again, if you're just doing it because you're scared and this gives you lots to write and lots to talk about without actually making anything happen in the real world, that's fine, certainly at first, but I think you need to really revisit your motives and, and really think about what you're going to do with them. So listen, we can go through several more of these core um, skills. We can go through quantitative reasoning. And unsurprisingly, that probably has some important things to tell us about how a child might learn maths. We've got recognition of designs. Uh, verbal similarities and word definitions so again that probably will tell us some things about the knowledge they already have about uh, well what words mean or how to categorize semantic ideas and uh, this kind of thing but whatever psychometric assessment you choose you need to get real about what the upshot of what you'd measured actually is and I think that's probably enough on this except to say that if you are applying and you want to discuss psychometrics um, in your personal statement or in your interview or if it comes up I think you're safe enough to have covered some of the historical and philosophical issues around it and also to have covered what it means for the day-to-day -day practice of the role rather than getting into the weeds about what every single different psychometric assessment can offer you about what every single subtest within that can offer you about how confident you feel learning how to carry out a psych psychometric assessment because maybe stats aren't your thing or it makes you feel nervous or whatever or if if you're furious and hate psychometric assessment all of that i think you could probably probably park all of that and i think you would do a good job as someone who has considered it as an issue as something that has a history and hasn't just appeared as if from nowhere something that has some political weight to it and significance to it in terms of the decision you're making and something that has significance in terms of how you interpret the role and carry it out. And I think I'm going to take a break, leave it at that, and then I think I'm going to finish. So my intention was actually to do a little reflection at the end of that, but I've left it so long since put one of these together that um, the portfolio that needs to have reflections in it has now been handed in. So I, I still enjoy this project and I'm going to see if I can find time to continue it. But I should just say that I'm going to finish this episode now and upload it and continue with this process because it sort of clarifies my thinking as well. Um, suffice it to say, I'm now recording this segment uh, on the 22nd of January, which is months.
after the this original bit was done, but it's been a very few very busy few months. But I'll get back to it and maybe put a serious dent in it in the summer. But uh, yeah, listen, good luck, and uh, I'll upload another one as soon as I possibly can. Bye.